If you would now open up your Bibles with me. Let's open them up together to the book of John, chapter 13. This morning we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Each time we do this, we are turning to the Gospel of John uh, to focus on the words and the actions of Christ in the hours leading up to His death on the cross. And we're returning this morning to John 13 and the account of Christ washing the feet of His disciples. What I'd like to do is read the first five verses of John 13. The first five verses. And this is the Word of God. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And during supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, back at the beginning of August, we studied the first verse of this chapter. We took time to unpack five truths that John tells us in just that first verse concerning the context in which Jesus performed this wonderful act of service. This morning... Uh, With the brief time that we have, I want us to think about verse 2. And I want us to meditate on this reality. That Jesus washed the feet of Judas. This is really uh, the one key observation that I want us to make this morning. Uh, Verse 2 says that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And yet Jesus, knowing this, stoops to wash Judas' feet. And so I want us to think about this truth. I want us to apply it to our own lives as we come to the Lord's table. I have three points, three points to make in the exposition. First, while I don't want to get sidetracked on this, I do think it is worth noting that it is almost a habit of John's when he writes of Judas to identify Judas by his father. Did you notice that? In our verse, John identifies Judas as Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. And this is not the first time that John has done this. In John 6, 71, we read, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Uh, In chapter 13, verse 26, this is our chapter, verse 26. You can look there with me. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now John had a good reason to regularly identify Judas by his father. 
You see, another one of the twelve disciples was also named Judas. Uh, This other Judas was Judas, son of James. Uh, In Matthew's gospel, in Mark's gospel, he is called Thaddeus. Uh, If you look at verse 22 of the next chapter, John 14, verse 22, you'll see this. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him. You see, there were two Judases, and so John has to regularly designate which Judas it is that he is talking about. And in our verse, John 13, 2, John does this in his most common way by mentioning Judas's father. And when I read that, what I take away from it, what I can't help but note, is that the lives we live reflect upon our parents. The lives we live reflect upon our parents. The choices that we make, the kind of life we live, either honors or dishonors our parents. Children are the legacy of their parents. Even godly parents, once they have left this world, if their children are ungodly, if their children are cruel, They are often remembered through that lens. Judas' actions in betraying Christ brought dishonor upon his father, upon his family. He betrayed Christ not just as Judas. He betrayed Christ as Judas, son of Simon. Everything we do, we do as sons and daughters of our parents. And whether we have had wonderful parents... Whether we have had terrible parents, the office of parent is one that is worthy of being dignified. And so Mount Hermon, whether you are five years old or 95 years old, we need to remember that our actions reflect upon our family. And we ought to live in a way that honors our family. We also need to remember that now that we are Christians, we also wear the name of Christ. You are not just the son or daughter of your parents. You are now a son or daughter of God Himself. And so just as Judas's actions reflected on his father, so our actions and our choices say something to this world about our Heavenly Father. If you have been baptized in the name of Jesus, if you profess to be His follower, Your words and your attitudes and your thoughts say something to this world about Christ. And if you're a member here at Mount Hermon, then the kind of life you live reflects on your family here as well. I wish it were so that all I would have to say to someone is, I'm a Christian. And they would immediately know by that word Christian, oh, that's a person of honesty. That's a person who is trustworthy. That's a person who is kind and respectable. That's what Christians ought to be known for. Unfortunately, in our day and culture, that is often not the case. There's not a whole lot we can do about that except seek to work worthy of the gospel we have received. But what comes to people's minds when they hear that you are a member at Mount Hermon? Does that tell people in this community something about you? 
Does that tell them that you are a a serious Christian? Someone who takes the things of Christ to heart? Does it tell the world that you care deeply about Christ's truth and that you are striving every day to obey Christ? See, we used to have a a, a letter that we would uh, give to people when we did different outreach events. And it always had a little letter for me at the beginning. And I always put in there, I hope that when you meet a member of Mount Hermon, you can count on them to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, a person of honesty and integrity. The way we live reflects on our family. Is that true? When we put that letter into people's hands, can they say that is true? I pray they can. We are not isolated individuals. The decisions we make, whether for good or for evil, reflect on our biological families. They reflect on our church family. And ultimately, they reflect on God Himself. Church, if we were to remember this, it would be a powerful preventative against sin. To picture your mother or father, to picture your grandmother or grandfather when temptation comes, to picture your brothers and sisters in Christ that you love, to think about your heavenly father. When temptation comes, if you would remember them and remember that your actions reflect on them, what a cure against sin. Number two, note in our verse that the devil, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. We have in this verse a reminder that what took place in the life of Judas was the result of satanic activity. This activity is only amplifying, increasing, as Jesus draws nearer and nearer to the cross. In fact, right here in the upper room, Satan is actually going to come into Judas and possess him. Look down at verses 26 and 27. John 13, 26, 27. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. When we look at the Bible as a whole, demon possession appears to have been a rather rare phenomenon. Only when the Son of God appeared on earth do we suddenly see this spike in demon possessions. It's as if the devil has increased his efforts to disrupt Christ and his ministry. But only once in all of the Bible do we see Satan himself possess someone. Only once do we see Satan himself enter into someone to control them. And we see that in this upper room in just a few minutes. Satan has already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And soon after this event of washing the disciples' feet, Satan is going to fully enter in to Judas to make sure that all is carried out according to his wicked plan. But third, note in our verse that Judas already has it in his heart to betray Jesus in his heart. 
He wants to betray Jesus. He is intending to betray Jesus. It is now his set motivation to betray Jesus. We might rightfully ask, why would Judas want to betray Jesus? What motivated Judas to do this terrible thing? There is good reason to think that when Judas became a follower of Jesus, he did so in the hope that Jesus would be an earthly revolutionary. That is, Judas was longing for the day when Israel would revolt against its Roman oppressors. That they were looking for an earthly Messiah who would set them free from the Roman soldiers guarding the streets, from the Roman tax collectors oppressing the people. And as time went on, Judas began to realize Jesus isn't here for that purpose. He began to realize that Jesus was not there to defeat the Romans and and his heart became disillusioned and, and hardened towards Christ. Probably Judas's heart had been turning against Jesus for some time, and the devil used this to his advantage. Interestingly, however, Judas's disillusionment with Jesus is not the reason the Bible gives for why Judas betrayed Jesus. Rather, the picture that the Bible gives is of a man whose heart was hardened by greed. He was the treasurer. For the disciples, Judas Judas, uh, carried the money bag and he was the one that was responsible for the monies that was given to Jesus and the disciples for their ministry. Church, handling money is dangerous. Those who have money and work with money, uh, whether it's their own or others, must take special care to guard their hearts. There's nothing fundamentally evil about money. There's just something fundamentally evil about the human heart. And money seems to trigger greed. If you'll turn back just one chapter in your Bible to chapter 12, uh, we have this moving story of the woman Mary anointing Jesus' feet. And she pours oil upon Jesus' feet, but it's, it's expensive oil. It's costly Ointment. And look at John 12, 4. John 12, verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him. See, he's again designating, not that Judas, but this Judas. right? The one who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Then John adds this commentary. He said this not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, here we learn that the sin of greed was at work in the heart of Judas. We should also remember the Old Testament prophecies, especially in Zechariah, that the Messiah would be betrayed for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. That is not a small detail. Judas was out to make a buck. The money mattered to Judas. It was envy that motivated the religious leaders to arrest Jesus. It was greed that motivated Judas to betray him. 
Envy was the snare that the devil used to compel the religious leaders towards violence. Greed was the snare the devil used to compel Judas towards treachery. And this was a true betrayal that Judas was planning. You see, Jesus had many followers, but he has chosen the twelve who are a part of his inner circle. And Judas was one of those. He had walked with Jesus, sat with Jesus, eaten with Jesus. He had seen Jesus laugh. He had seen Jesus weep. He had lived with him day after day. These men had gone through good times and hard times together. Uh, Judas with the other disciples had seen the miracles. They had seen Lazarus get up from the dead. They had seen the demons cast out. Judas with the others knew of the hatred that the religious leaders had towards Jesus. They had watched as Jesus rebuked them strongly to their faces. And they had seen Jesus kneel down to welcome children and to comfort tax collectors and prostitutes in gentleness and in mercy. Mount Hermon Judas was one of the most privileged men that ever walked the planet. Judas knew what it was to be a friend to Jesus. He knew what it was to hear Jesus' words from his own mouth. Judas got to see Christ's example, Christ's witness with his own eyes. He even got to see the wondrous deeds for himself. And the Bible seems to teach that Judas threw all that away out of love for money. And now as Jesus begins to wash his disciples' feet, he is fully aware of what Judas is plotting. In fact, he's known for a long time that Judas would be the one to betray him. Jesus knew the Old Testament very well. Remember how he was able at the temple when he was 12 years old to discuss the scriptures with the scribes and the people were astonished that he knew as much as he knew at the the ripe age of 12. By this time, Jesus knew very well the prophecies in the Old Testament about his betrayal. And through the Spirit and through his own observation, he had come to know that it would be Judas. In fact, in John 6, beginning in verse 70, we read, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And then John tells us, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Uh, It seems that Jesus had known about Judas' coming treachery probably for years before this moment. In just a few minutes, as they're reclining around the table, Jesus is going to hand Judas the morsel of bread. And he's going to look Judas in the eyes, and he's going to say, what you're going to do, go ahead and do it, and do it quickly. But that's not where we are yet. In this moment, in this upper room, there are only two men who know what Judas is plotting. And that's Judas... And that's Jesus. And so as Jesus washes each of the disciples' feet, he comes to Judas. Jesus' robe is removed. He is dressed as an oriental slave. He has the towel wrapped around his waist. The room is probably silent. The disciples are astonished by their master 
humbling Himself to do this menial act. And Jesus bends low before Judas and He takes Judas's dirty feet in His hands and He dips them in the wash basin and He begins to wipe them. And He wipes on top and He wipes underneath and maybe even between the toes. He does this well, not carelessly. Jesus did all things well. And we can rightly imagine Jesus occasionally looking up into the eyes of Judas, looking into the eyes of his betrayer with love and with sadness. And in this moment, Jesus is preaching to Judas, here is why I've come. And here is what really matters. This is not about liberty from the Romans. And it's not about making a buck. It's about serving others for the glory of God. It's about loving those who are undeserving. It's about laying one's life down that others might live. Now that's the exposition. Allow me to make some application of this verse to our lives. Just two points. Number one, see the love of Jesus for even the vilest of sinners. Do you see it, church? Friends, our Savior knew what it was to truly love His enemies. When He told us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, to respond to their curses with blessing and with kindness, He was our example. He is the man who is going to be betrayed with a kiss. It's been a long time since we studied Matthew's Gospel, that exposition we did years ago. But uh, those of you who are here, maybe you'll remember we studied Judas's betrayal of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we saw how full of hatred it is. According to Matthew's account, there is no hesitancy. There is no sadness. There is no reluctance in Judas when he betrays Christ. He plays it up. He, he's got his money. His heart is hardened. He enjoys the betrayal. Judas walks up to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi. There are few moments in the Bible where we see a wickedness so purely evil as what we see in that moment when Judas betrays Jesus into the hands of his enemies. And yet Jesus loves this traitor. There is no wounded pride in Jesus. There is no anger. There is no vengeance. There is only love and compassion and sadness. Jesus loved and served this man. And dear friends, in seeing the love of Christ for Judas, do you not see the wondrous love of Christ for you? We are not all that different from Judas. I imagine we've all felt the pull of greed. And we all have our sins that ensnare us. Sins that the devil could use to harden our hearts against Jesus. When we read about the vileness of Judas, we must say, there but for the grace of God goes I. Indeed, think about the privileges that you've experienced. You live on this side of the cross, this side of the empty tomb. You know what Christ endured for you. You've heard the Gospel, most of you hundreds, even thousands of times. 
You have a completed Bible in which the love of God for you in Jesus Christ is revealed to you. You know the promises of God to you, that He's working all for your good, that His grace is sufficient, that He's never going to leave you. God has given you a church family with pastors and brothers and sisters who care for you and love you. You get to take the Lord's Supper in which you tangibly experience Christ as your Savior. The bread broken, the the, the blood spilt. In all of these ways, Christ is working to show you His love. Christ is seeking to show you how much He cares for you. And yet in the midst of blessing upon blessing upon blessing, how many times do we act with treachery towards the Lord Jesus Christ? How often are we the ones who spurn the one who died for us? How often do we neglect the prayer closet or the good deed that we know that God's called us to do? How often do we harden our hearts against our Savior and presumptuously do the very thing we know He's told us not to do? Church, do you sense your own depravity? Do you sense your own wickedness? It is only when you sense your own wickedness that you can see the picture of Jesus stooping to wash the feet of Judas and you can feel His love. That He cares for you. Had Judas been willing to repent? Had Judas not in despair gone and killed himself? Had he run to the risen Savior for mercy? Jesus would have forgiven and saved even Judas. Church, I want to be very clear about this. Listen very carefully. God forbid that there ever be a season in which you begin to turn away from God. If you ever begin to wander away, if you ever begin to backslide, if you ever begin to reject the things of God, you are imperiling your soul and you are hurting others around you. Boys and girls in this room, teenagers in this room, I pray that there will never be a day when you rebel against the God your parents have taught to you. Seek to always be close to Christ. Seek to always follow after Him. But, should there ever come a day when you realize that you've done just that, that you've wandered away, that you've been backsliding, that you have turned away from God's love and His promises and His commands. Should there ever be a day when you, like the prodigal son, come to your senses and you look around and you're in the midst of the pigsty and it dawns on you what you've been doing and that you've been a rank sinner and that you have spurned all the blessings and the love that God has shown to you. In that moment, you might suddenly feel the weight of all your sin. You're going to feel the weight of all the things you've done and you might think to yourself, I'm so ashamed. If others knew what I've been doing with my life, they would be flabbergasted. There is no way that God could ever take me back. You might feel like Judas, so despairing that you'd rather die than keep living. Dear friend, remember on that day that Jesus washed the feet of Judas. Remember on that day that Jesus loved Judas knowing every single thing that Judas was about to do. Remember on that day that Jesus will always forgive and take you back 
if you will humble yourself and turn to him with childlike faith. See the great love of Christ for even the vilest of sinners. Forgive me while I cry for a moment. Number two, see the source and the strength of this kind of love. See the source and the strength of this kind of love. You see, just as we are loved in that way, we ought to love others in that way. (laughs) Just as we have freely forgiven forgiveness and love through Jesus Christ, we ought to freely forgive and love those who are our enemies, who hurt us. So let me ask you, I know this is true for all of us, are there people in your life who have hurt you deeply? Love them. Don't just make peace with what they've done in your heart and mind. Love them and forgive them. Take action on their behalf. Jesus stooped to wash Judas's feet. He responded to evil with good. This is how we are to respond to those who hurt us, to those who come against us. We are to actively love them. We are to actively seek their welfare. We are to overflow with kindness towards them. We are to overcome evil with good. We are to love them in truth and in deed. And not just in word. When Jesus says love your enemies, he doesn't mean just have a feeling in your heart of accepting what they've done to you. When Jesus says love your enemies, he means get out there and love them. This is how Christ has loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ came down from heaven and died for us. And though we remain sinners, he continues to love us. And Jesus loves us not just in word, though we are so thankful for his word, but He loves us indeed in action, interceding for us before God this very moment. Well, Mount Hermon, as far as it depends upon us, let us strive for peace with all who are against us. And though they curse us all the more, let us love them and bless them a thousand times more. If they take our tunic, we offer them our cloak. If they say, go with me one mile, we say, I'll go with you too. Punch you in one side of your face, you turn the other. Justin, how can I love people that way? You don't know what this person's done to me. You don't know what, what that company did to me, what that, how that boss treated me, how that friend, that neighbor, that coworker, that family member, Justin, you don't understand. My heart is not just naturally going to love these enemies. My heart is not naturally going to respond with kindness. How in the world can I love someone who has treated me so badly? We're friends. We don't have time to flesh it out this morning. That's next Lord's Supper. But did you notice where Jesus, who was a true man, found what he needed to love Judas. Did you see where he as a man found the strength he needed to to love Judas? It was in verse 1, right? When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. It's also very clear in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Jesus 
knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. You see, there were certain things that Jesus knew that made all the difference. And I don't mean that Jesus just knew them intellectually. I mean, there were things that Jesus believed and rested in. And that's where he got his strength to love even this man who was about to betray him. Jesus knew that through the cross, he was was going to obtain the world. He knew that he was headed towards suffering and misery, but on the other side of suffering and misery was unimaginable blessing. He knew who he was. He knew who he had, he had come from God. He knew he was here for a purpose. He knew what his future held. He believed what the Word of God had told him about himself, and in that security, he was able to love. As wicked and evil as Judas's betrayal was, Jesus knew that his father was in control. Jesus knew that Judas's actions were all part of his father's plan ultimately to bring him to glory and to exalt him above every other name. Most fundamentally, Jesus knew that his father loved him and that nothing was going to happen in his life that was not a result of the love of the father for him. Dear Christian, here is where you can find the source and the strength that you need to love those that are hard to love by knowing God's love for you by believing, by resting in it, by living in it. Abide in Christ, Brad read this morning. Abide in Him and you will bear much fruit. Know who you are. Know that you are a hell-bound, sorry, hell-deserving sinner, but you are a heaven-bound saint. That's who you are, Christian. Hell-deserving sinner, but heaven-bound saint by grace. You have been adopted by God. You are His child. You have glory ahead for you. And nothing you face today, nothing that anybody in this world can do to you compares with the glory that is ahead for you. I'm sorry I'm yelling. Do you feel the weight of this? This, The security of living in God's love for you, as Jesus did, is where we find the strength to love even the hardest. So live in the reality of this love. Sink your roots deep into it. And you will have what you need to love even the Judases of your life. Let's pray.